All right, good evening. It is seven o'clock and we are, I'd love to see your cameras if you've, uh, <coughs> it's always much more fun to see who's watching this year. So assuming you are not uh, multitasking, I'd love your camera to be on. So we are going to deal with the uh, sticky topic that rabbis across Australia currently and soon around the world are going to be dealing with, which is that uh, shuls are now going to be going back, but in a very limited capacity which means that uh, that limited capacity is going to be able to, we're going to have to somehow create a, a system, let's call it a triage system. So the doctors have been doing triage for the last few months. Now the rabbis have to do triage to figure out who gets to go to Minion, um, which is, I suppose it's uh, better than the alternative is, which is not having 10 people to get. But once you've got your uh, 10, so you're going to put in applications and the way that the process is going to unfold is that there's going to have to be an application process that people are going to write in and say, I'd like to come to the minion. And then we're going to have to try to figure out amongst the rabbis or the shul, whoever the case might be, who exactly gets to, uh, gets to come and in what frequency and the like. So as you see, I've called this shul, who gets the magic ticket, you know, using a Willy Wonka uh, marshal, if so have you. So we're going to deal with this question on a couple. Of, first and foremost, I have sent this question to um, some of the big rabbis around the world in a hope that we'll be able to actually get an answer with clear guidelines. But at this point in time, I've asked a lot of people and I've had complete opposite um, advice on, uh, or, or thinking on the matter. So I, I, I'm not going to open up because my experience has been in these uh, Zoom share room when I say, what do you think? Unless I specifically invite someone to ask, give an answer, people are unlikely to volunteer them. So I find that's the case in shul. And if I thought it was tough to get people to answer up in shul, it's 10 times harder to get people to answer up on Zoom. So let's just say it as follows. There, there seem to be, uh, the common logic would be that you say, well, who should get to go to Minyan? Let's start at this point in time. Let's start with weekday Minyan. Let's not deal with Shabbat. Let's just do a weekday Minyan. So who gets to come to weekday Minyan? So we put out a, you know, a, an email. We're going to be starting Minyan tomorrow. Who wants to come? So we get uh, 15 people say they want to come. Of those 15 people, 10 of them, let's say, let's say 12 of them are your regular shul attendees. They come uh, most mornings of the week. That's it. Then you have, um, let's say that 20 people come. So 12, so 12 of them are your regular attendees. Then you have three people who have Yotzat. Then of the five that are remaining, you've got a couple of them that come. Maybe they have their day a week. They come on Monday mornings or Wednesday mornings, whatever the case may be. They come once a week. That's their day. And the other two are just, you know, they, they want to come. You know, they don't, they're not normal people. They're the kinds of people who rock up uh, Erev Pesach, you know, because it's faster the firstborn. You know, so that's their, that's their shachet of the year or something similar. But these are people who are not shul attendees, but they've expressed interest, you know, oh, I'll go. So how, how do we uh, ration the, those 10 players? We've got 20 people applying. How are we going to give a, decide which 10 are going to get it? So, you know, I put my, my head together and I, and I wrote in, in you know, this, uh, my, my, uh, my letter that I sent to my rabbinim. I said, I assume that the regulars get first dibs. So if a person, you know, comes to shul seven days a week and now Minion's on, so the seven-day-a-weekers should get first dips. Um, but yacht sites are always uh, individuals who get preference on, um, you know, with regards to aliyot. So someone has an, a yacht site, so they always get first dips. Not that that, just to understand, not that they have a yacht site in the upcoming week, 
but they have a yotzat on the day. So if they've got a yotzat on the day, then they get then they uh, they trump everybody. If they've got a yotzat upcoming week, we try to give them an aliyah as well. So they would definitely get preference. You know, they've got to say kaddish and the like. Um, people who let's say what's have a chiyuv means they're in the eleventh months of saying kaddish or in the thirty days of saying kaddish. So these people have a certain specific obligation. So it made sense that they would get first dibs. But then I said, you know, the regulars and then the irregulars, you know, Chaim Shmerel comes once in a blue moon, you know, so, or, you know, if he doesn't have a Yotzat, so, you know, so he'll wait until Shul goes back. Now, hopefully when the numbers get back to normal, uh, he will still be interested in coming. Now, one of the, the controversies that's coming now, and this is something which um, uh, is one that will become more and more of a challenge, is what about women? Because assuming that the 10 people that can attend are um, 10 and 10 only. Um, so if you have a woman that attends, then you don't have a minion. So, but what are we going to say that for the next uh, X amount of months, women can't go to shul? So that, that's, that's a challenge that we're going to have to uh, navigate in some form. But even, uh, even if we can allow them to come, you know, it's how are we going to allocate? So, for example, at the moment, the law in Australia is, in, in New South Wales at least, is that you allow 10 plus clergy. So, you, so potentially, if you, know, if you had uh, myself, Rabbi Cohen, Rabbi Kunin, and Micha, so that's four. So, we could get 14 in the minion. So, potentially, we could have the four of us, six men and four women. So, it is potential that we could do such a thing. Um, but I, I wonder, and, and, and I say this in, in, in just, literally as a wonder that once you completely eradicate anything social from shul um, who actually is going to want to come because we're dealing with a service that is going to be very short there are going to be no mishabayrach sorry Dave you're out of a job for until until Shabbos uh, until we get back to normal there are going to be no mishabayrachs it's literally come in dove and leave there's no schmoozing before there's no schmoozing after there's definitely no kiddush and if I look to the average Shabbos attendee at Kilat Masada, if you were to take the social component completely out of the service, I wonder how many people would actually want to attend. So I don't know. But anyway, let's, let's leave that in the question mark at the moment. So let's go on to our sheets that you've got in front of you, and we'll deal with this uh, question. So the first thing I want to quote is, a, is a, an opinion of the Rivash. The Rivash is a, a Rishon, so we're talking about the, you know, around the 10th century. And he says as follows, and he's dealing with the idea of going to Minyan. That when you're going to Shul, you should make sure that you should never go by yourself. You should always go to go with the community. And you go together, and then as a community, you can repent. This is talking specifically about around the time Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So it says that the, the tefillah, the prayers of the community, is something that is far more heard by Hashem. So this is a concept that comes up regularly throughout the Talmud, that when I pray by myself, in essence, it's my merit. So if, if I'm a good guy, and I'm, you know, and Hashem... Um, you know, say, thinks I'm doing pretty well. So then great. So then maybe my prayers will be answered, maybe not. But if I go as a community, the strength of the community, the strength in numbers of the community means that the prayer is more likely to be heard. So that's what it says here. It's, it's, that the, the prayer of the community is always heard. So it quotes a Gemara, it says, 
Halvana. Say Koitze Gomorrah. And this is the Gomorrah that I have immediately underneath here. And it is quite a fascinating Gomorrah that you would have heard from me in some form or another, although not necessarily. Oh, just lost. Sorry. Um, not necessarily in this context. So the Gomorrah says as follows Amar Rebi Chama Bazna. Amar Rebi Shimu. So he says as follows. So it's talking in the context of communal fast days. So it says any fast day that does not include mi Yisrael, lack of a better term, sinners from the community, it is not considered a fast day. So we've got this fast day, let's call it Yom Kippur. So if there are no Poshei Yisrael, these, the Poshei Yisrael are the people who are so everyone knows these are the sinners. These are your, your, your peripheral Jews on the community. If they're not part of the fast day, then the fast day is worthless. And why? So he quotes an interesting story. So on Shabbat morning, straight after the Amidah, after Musaf, we do Ein Kelokainu. And Ein Kelokainu goes into a, a, a Mishnah called Pituma Kotoret, which talks about all the different incenses that were offered in the, in the temple. And it says... That all these, and so, and he quotes the thing, says, the smell of Gelbanum is foul. So one of the spices that was added in the incense in the Beit HaMikdash was very pungent. It was disgusting. Yet, it, the verse listed with the ingredients of the incense, meaning this incense that's going to be offered up in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple, it's got this incredibly foul-smelling spice. And what happens if you to offer the incense without that spice? So the whole service is nullified, meaning that you need the foul spice as part of the incense offering. So says Rabbi Chana Bar Bizna, says, you know what that's telling us? That you cannot have a, a service that doesn't have something foul in it. That the idea of having a service where everybody is righteous, that is not a service. Now, he doesn't say this over here, but it is said elsewhere in the Talmud. When we talk about davening in a community, we say it's tvila b'tzibur, in a tzibur. Now, the word tzibur, which usually means community, is actually an acronym for the word tzadikim, benunim, urishaim. Tzadikim, the righteous people, the benunim, the so-so people, and the rishaim, the wicked people. And you need to have all three groups in order to make a minion. So, so what the Rashbash earlier, the first source, has come to suggest is that when you daven, you have to daven in a tzibur. So, if, so most of the time, we don't determine who comes to Minyan. Who comes to Minyan? Whoever walks into the front door. But if you're going to now try to, you're going to custom make a Minyan. And you say, all right, who's, go, who's going to be in our Minyan? So you're going to say, all right, so you can't just take the tzadikim. Because if you just take all the righteous people, so then you don't have a tzibur. Then you just got a tzadik. You need the tzadikim, the benonim, and rishayim. So you really need to somehow create this mixture within the shul that is uh, made up of people that are, are, are your regular attendees. But if there's an expression of interest from your, your non-attendees who are wanting to, to come, so you have to find space for them because they are part of the community. Now, I, please do not misquote me. I'm not saying that the person who doesn't come to shul is wicked. God forbid. But I'm saying that the idea that the community should not be monolithic. It's this idea of having the sausage machine that everybody who comes to shul is all, you know, all on the same page. And halavive, only we could have a shul where everyone was committed and everyone was from and everyone was doing everything. So it says that's very nice. It might be pleasant for your social life, 
But as far as a community, you cannot have a community if you are excluding people from that community. And so it's, it's, it's a fascinating mindset to be able to create this concept of community that we don't reject those who we disagree with, but we have to embrace them. No matter, and the more distasteful they are, seemingly the, the, the more they are a crucial part of our community. Now, that being said, um, let's just, um, <coughs> we just need to uh, qualify that somewhat. Because even though that is true, most of the time, there are always going to be exceptions to any particular rule. And this is a question that is asked here of the Minchad Yitzchak. This is advice. So he was the Munkacher Rebbe. He passed away, I think, in the 1960s, 1970s. But he's asking a question over here, which is a question that is um, asked in most modern uh, shuls, uh, like Kilat Masada. So Kilat Masada, Central, Southhead, all of these shuls are going to have this following question. And the question is, um, how do we treat an intermarried Jew with regards to counting them in a minion? So the question over here is specifically counting in a minion. And uh, can you count them in a minion or not? Now, uh, as you can see, there's quite a lengthy uh, piece over here, but and I don't want to, um, I don't want to go into the whole thing. But let me explain it outside. In order for someone to be included within a minion, necessitates uh, two separate parts. Number one is they consider themselves part of the community. So it's all well and good to say that we need a tzibur, we need to have the tzedekim benunim rishayim, the good, the bad, and the ugly. However, that's assuming that the bad and the ugly also consider themselves part of the community. But if they themselves do not affiliate or do not consider themselves part of this community, so you can't count them as part of the minion. Because they, they, are, they have actively excluded themselves. It's not that I, as the rabbi, am excluding them from the community, but rather that they have chosen through their deeds and actions and beliefs to exclude themselves from the community. So you cannot include them. And that is a broad rule throughout Judaism. The question that now comes much more of a, of, of, of a moving uh, a bar of, of trying to figure out is when do we decide that a person's actions have warranted the, the statement that they've, re, they've removed themselves from the community? So you don't have to go too long ago, about 200 years ago. And truth be told, in some communities, until this very day, that if a person to stop keeping Shabbat, it was a statement that they've left the community. So if you go in Bnei Brak, and you are non, uh, I'll be honest, I've been at the, at the Western War, at the Kotel, where I've been standing with 10, ten or 9 um, very frum-looking individuals, and me, and I'm like, what are we waiting for? Why don't we get started? And they said, no, no, we're just waiting for one more. And when the, the next uh, very frum guy arrives, then they start. And I realized that I wasn't counted in the minion. Now, I don't know if I wasn't counted in the minion because they weren't certain whether I was frum or not, or I wasn't counting the minion because I thought I was a Zionist and a Zionist is automatically excluded from the minion. I don't know. There are lots of reasons I could have been excluded from the minion. But we do still see today that if a person's behavior is considered to that through their behavior, they have rejected the community. So then uh, the community rejects them. They can't be counted in a minion. And so every shul has really got to try ascertain um, what actions taken in that community are considered rejecting that community. So <clears throat> once upon a time, not long ago, 
um, everyone would have agreed on the idea that if a person marries out of the faith, um, a man especially marries out of the faith, it's a statement that he's not going to raise a Jewish family and he has no interest in being part of the Jewish community anymore and therefore he cannot be counted in a minion at all. Not only can he not get an aliyah, he can't be counted in a minion. The question is, is that still true? Um, and it might still be true, but it's quickly becoming not true because time and time again, we see people who are very proud of their Jewishness and still attend shul, some of them in quite regular occurrences, even though they've married out. So it's one of those things that's now become a lot harder because it's no longer an automatic. Sometimes it's just they, they've been brought up in the world, the same as most of us grew up non-keeping Shabbos, not because we were rejecting Judaism, just wasn't what we were used to. So similarly in this regard, so, so there are going to be limits that as, as much as we want to broaden the tent of the Jewish community to include everyone who is considers themselves part of the community, but we cannot. So if some guy comes and walks in and technically he's Jewish, he's his uh, mother's 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 Jewish, but he's a third generation Catholic. So even though halachically, assuming we could prove it, even though halachically this guy is Jewish, you couldn't count him in a minion because he is completely out of the fold. So that's one category of a person who you could never count in the minion. The other category of a person who you can't count in the minion is a person who's 100% Jewish and is considered part of the community, but has no idea what's flying. So this is your Jew who is uh, just completely unlearned. So they're happy. So you, you, you know, we're at shul and we've got nine and there's a, just a, a parent-teacher's meeting downstairs and we ask some of the guy, oh, can you come help make a minion? He says, sure, he'll come make a minion. And we know that he's Jewish, but the guy doesn't have a clue about shul. The guy doesn't know Amen, he doesn't know Baruch Hu, he doesn't know how to answer to Kaddish. The guy, the guy knows absolutely nothing. So can you count such a person in a minion? So this individual is still very much part of the community. Again, this is not like the first guy who's, who's, who's actively rejected the community. This guy's part of the community. But you have to be somewhat literate in the service to be able to be included. Now, literate doesn't mean you have to be able to lead the service. It doesn't even mean you have to dove in the service. It just means you need to have a general clue of what's going on. That if the chazan says Baruch Hu, you know how to say Baruch Hu. And if this is a Kaddish, you know how to answer Amen. Um, so there are limits, and, and so that becomes a big question often. I remember my, my Rosh Kolel, um, when we asked him the question, when we went into the army, and we said, um, if we need to make a minion, can you, uh, can you get just a bunch of secular soldiers to help make your minion? And he said, Svardim yes, Ashkenazim no. And that is, if you know anything about Israel, is secular Svardim are more traditional than, uh, than us traditional Jews in Australia. A secular Sephardi can uh, daven, most of the davening by heart, probably puts on Sephardi, he'll put uh, tefillin on every single day, even though he's got uh, tattoos all over his body. That's a Sephardi Jew. He knows his uh, heritage. But an Ashkenazi, you can meet an Ashkenazi Jew that's born and bred in Israel, went through the entire school system, and literally doesn't know what the Shema is. And I've met these. You know, I was once said uh, when Tamar and I were first married, we were in Shul, and there was this... Um, young woman there and she was uh, sitting in shul next to Tamar and, and, the, um, and we got to the Shema and the woman said to Tamar, what are you saying? She said, I'm saying the Shema. And she says, what is that? And this was a 1920 year old girl who'd grown up in a place called Kirat Motskin, which is up near Haifa. Whole life there. So the people like that, you can't count in a minion. 
Again, we're not discriminating against them that they are somehow sub, uh, not part of the community. They're very much part of the community. But, but you have to be able to be part of a minion. You have to be able to uh, follow the service, at least to some degree. All right, so, so let's just uh, follow the, the, the roadmap where we are so far. So we've got this idea that we want to have a very broad uh, spectrum of the community in the minion. We don't want to relegate it to only the, only the, the quote-unquote the from. We want to allow other people to come in. However, we also need to accept the fact that there's a limit to how far we can spread it. So that a person wants to come to shul, so we have to say, all right, are you, has you, is your lifestyle con, uh, consistent with communal norms? Let's call it that. And uh, you're going to be able to actually participate in the service. So those are two, two uh, prerequisites that need to be taken into consideration. Um, one of my rabbinim actually answered the following, which was also similar along these lines. He said, actually wrote to me uh, in a personal capacity. So I was put this on a, on, on a group and all the different other rabbis were answering. And then uh, my rabbi wrote to me, he says, you know, I, I don't mean this to be authorita- authoritative uh, psak, uh, uh, determine the halacha. But I think you should allow the, um, the irregulars to come. And the reason is, is that the regulars, if they don't come to shul, they'll still daven at home. The irregulars, if you don't allow them to come to minion, they're not going to daven at home. So ultimately, surely there's going to be a net sum gain of davening if you allow the irregulars to come to shul. So I thought that was an interesting point. Um, and um, so yeah, so it remains to be seen. But uh, We'll see once we start putting out the, uh, the emails to say who wants to come. Um, I'm hoping this is a problem I, I have to deal with. My, my, my experience suggests I might be bitterly disappointed by the actual uh, people who put their hands up. All right, <coughs> let's go through another, other, a few other questions that are going to uh, face us. Uh, one is going to be davening outside. So davening outside where they're sure at home is always going to be a question because to make a minion, you need to have 10 people in the same place. The question is, what is considered the same place? So if you're in a, if you're in a building and you've got uh, multiple offices in the building and you've got two people in five different offices, um, it's, it, it would not be considered um, a minion, even though there might be 10 people. They need to be sort of in the same space. So this is a <coughs> um, one of the opinions over here. I said by the Minchad Yitzchak, same guy who uh, had the earlier one about the intermarriage. So he says that the two prerequisites in order to make a minion. One is you have to be able to see the other people in the minion. And two, you have to be able to hear the other people in the minion. So seeing and hearing. So what we have in the Beit Medrash at Shul, what often happens is the Beit Medrash, sometimes it gets full and people will spill out into the foyer. Often it's not full and people prefer davening in the foyer. And that becomes a problem because these people are not part of the minion. So they can answer to the minion because answering to a minion, like there's a big difference between answering to a minion and being part of it. So for example, if you're walking past a shul and you are outside and you hear them saying Kaddish or Kedusha inside, you can answer that Kaddish and Kedusha. You're not part of the minion, but you can answer it because you can hear it. If, you, if you're your site, and you're walking past the shul and you hear it and you're standing on the outside and you hear that they get to this time of saying Kaddish, you can't, answer, you can't recite Kaddish from the outside because you're not part of the minion. So this idea that, you, that some people like, they like to stand like a little bit outside the shul, you know, in the foyer, whatever. So you're not considered part of the minion in that case, which is not a problem if there are 10 people on the inside. But if there are uh, nine people on the inside and you're on the outside, so that is uh, going to be a problem. 
So with regards to um, outdoor minyanim, assuming we can see everybody, which one would hope that it's in a reasonable close proximity, that we should be able to see everybody. But also if we are, um, if we are close enough to hear everybody. Now just as in parenthesis here, one of the things about davening that's crucial, especially the Amidah, is that davening needs to be loud enough that you can hear it, but soft enough so nobody else can hear it. And this is something that, it's, it's amazing how many people get this wrong. That davening, if you're, if you're davening uh, loud enough to the point that it is going to disturb the person next to you, it's a problem. So it has to be uh, audible enough that, you, that you're not uh, saying it in your head. You actually need to iterate the words from your mouth, but that it shouldn't be to the degree that it's going to disturb the people next to you. Because any form of uh, davening that is going to disturb people is something that you need to uh, consider. Now, just some of my pet peeves. So some of these things are controllable, some of them are not. So for example, um, shockling. So shockling is, uh, is brought down in the Gemara that one should move when they daven because it uh, comes from um, uh, All my bones call out to you, Hashem, and say who is like you. So this idea that we should move while we're davening is, uh, is part of that, that it's part of the davening, and that's great. But there are over-exaggerated forms of shockling, which, thank God, I haven't seen often in the community. In Israel, you see it quite a lot, where people gesticulate with their hands, and you know, it's almost like they're having a, a wrestling match with Hashem. So these things are a problem. The, the pet peeve, and there are ones that you can help in one call, one that you have to be able to help is the sniffles. There is nothing worse than being in shul with a guy next to a person with a runny nose that does not blow it. And you have every three seconds them sniffing. So that is a problem. And if you are a sniffler, so you need to make sure you've got tissues and uh, that it doesn't disturb the people that are next to you. All right, those were, that, that was just in parenthesis. All right, now, um, I'm also conscious that we have a history series starting shortly, so I don't want to, I know there's some people on the show here that are going to the history series, including myself, so we're going to, uh, think, uh, Leon, you have a question? Un- unmute yourself and you can ask your question. Rabbi, I'm going to go back to two points that you raised. The one, I'm confused because we are labeling people. The one you said, okay, is not married in the faith but there are a lot of other people who are committing other things that are against the Torah and they're part of our community they might have not not doing a certain thing but they haven't given up the community so it's very hard to say because they've been this and this and that they're not part of the community that's my, that's my first point <coughs> So, I mean, to answer that, it, it's going to vary from community to community. The question comes is what is considered a communal norm? When is a person, let's put it this way. If we had someone in our community that on your mouth would burnt the Israeli flag on their doorstep, okay? There's almost nothing halachic there, nothing whatsoever. But that person we wouldn't count in the shul service. Why? Because it's completely opposite of communal norms. They have, through the actions, they have rejected what is considered communal norm. So it doesn't have to be a halachic that, that, that we are looking at from a pure halachic that this avira is worse than that avira. It's sufficient to say that with this person's behavior is completely out of sync with what communal norms are. Yeah, yeah but there's even things halachically that people do, but we still, they're still part of the, yeah. The, not for us to judge them and say, okay, because your lifestyle, you like men or you like this or whatever, and we're not going to have you, 
It's not our right to do that. Correct. We are not, again, the idea of a community is that we as a community come together as a community. So what defines what is acceptable and not acceptable in that community? The answer is whatever the community decides is acceptable or not acceptable. And that will change with time. But at any point in time, if this community is a community that is incredibly open and liberal, so then they'll have much more liberal definitions of who's considered part of it or who's not. If it's a very conservative community, it's going to have a very conservative position. There's no right or wrong answer. But you can't say, but if the, our community is very uh, conservative, let's say it's very liberal, and there's an incredibly right-wing conservative who comes in, they probably won't be allowed to be counting the minion because they're con- completely out of the fold. They're an extremist. They're a fanatic. We don't count fanatics in our community. And it works in both directions. Lee, I, I, I want to just roll along because I don't want to eat into the time for the, for the next year. All right. So um, the last, last point that I want to mention, I'll do this briefly, uh, something quite fascinating, and that is the question of forcing people to come to shul. So this is, Rav Moshe Feinstein, amongst others, deal with this particular question in a couple of contexts. One is, um, what happens if you've only got nine people, you know, with a secular community, and we've got nine guys who come to Minyan, and we can't get a tenth. There's a tenth out there, but uh, he doesn't, you know, but there's no tenth, like, uh, who's prepared to volunteer. Do we have to exert pressure on him? So the Shulchan Aruch brings down explicitly that you do. You have to pressure on him and make sure that he comes. But we've, Moshe Feinstein takes it a step further. And he says, what about the case where you've got a shul? So Kila Masada. So we have, uh, let's say, uh, 50 men that come every Shabbos to Daven. Then comes Monday morning. And they, they daven at different shuls. They go uh, they, they go because they want to go daven in the city, so they daven in the city. And we've only got nine people at shul. So the other 41, this is a wonderful assumption, the other 41 are davening in a minion. They're just davening in a different minion. And we can't, Akira Masada, now have a minion because those 41 are davening elsewhere. So says Rav Moshe, so you can force them to not daven elsewhere. Ensure that you have a minion in the shul. So there are times that, uh, this, that we can exert pressure on people. And uh, I've tried this unsuccessfully. No one likes being pressured. When I call people up and I say, listen, you really got to come to Minion. So I, the first thing I get is, who are you to judge me? And it's, you know, it's a tough gig. It's a tough gig. But uh, in essence, halakhically, we're supposed to do that. All right. I'm sorry. We have to cut a bit short this evening. We have a history series starting right now. To that end, I wish you all a pleasant evening. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll leave everybody on. I'm not going to leave just yet. But just for those who want to go to the history, I'm sure you would have all received the uh, login. I'm not sure if there's anyone on there. Any one or two people on the group. So if you're going to go to the ship, by all means, please go. Otherwise, I'm happy for you to unmute yourself and ask some questions. Can I ask another question? Go for it. The person who comes to show is like a king of Shemishma. You said that he doesn't know anything. But you can't hold that against him if he's not learning, he doesn't know. The mere fact that we, we, we've heard lots of stories during the generation where a guy just stands on the roof and he hears and there's a bullshit or whatever so he's got his whole heart into it and that's fine so where does it where is the line of who is able to respond and who's not able to respond 
maybe him being just being there, he's fulfilling. You know, this guy comes to show you that's completely not follow the sentence. Sorry, got a bit of cross there. So, who do we get to? Okay, so I think. Sorry, let me just mute them there. I, I, I think we've got to distinguish, Leon, between um, not making a judgment call. Okay, the first group of people, we as a community have decided that their lifestyle is outside the norm, community norm. So whatever that community norm is, we've decided they are completely outside it, and that's why they can't be counted as part of the minion. Again, it can be anything. The more religious the community, the more... The more um, the more intolerant it will be of, of difference. And the more liberal community, the more tolerant it will be of community. That's just it. But whatever is considered the limits, that's the limit. Everyone has this limit. It's interesting. When I, when I, when I had a debate with uh, uh, Rabbi Kamens from uh, Emmanuel, and they were talking about orthodox conversion is uh, you know, too uh, intolerant, I said, you, know, you guys also have, uh, have points that uh, you don't accept someone. Like if some, I said, not everybody who walks into reform and says, I want to be Jewish gets accepted into the program. So you're also going to have to reject some people. So the only difference between Orthodox and reform is like, where's the bar? But we all agree that you can't just say you're Jewish and then be considered part of the minion. You've got to uh, commit to something. So we all got our lines. And so every shul has its lines. The second group of people, which are the illiterate. So there we're not discriminating against them because we think they are qualitatively inferior. There we discriminate against them. They lack the skill set to be able to do it. Like, you know, if a, a person um, can't swim, so you can't be on the swim team. Now, we love to be, there's one thing that we say, you know, you don't come to practice. If you don't come to practice, you can't be on the team. So that's our first category of people, that they are good swimmers. And they are, but, but they never come to practice. So, and, and they badmouth the swim team and everything. So th- those people can't come on the swim team. But the second group of people, they're, they're very nice and they come and they support and they're happy to come to practice, but they can't swim. So you can't put them on the swim team. Like they, they can come cheer and they can come uh, be part and we'd love to uh, give them, you know, they can open the arc, close the arc, do hugba, glila, whatever the case might be. But you count them in a minion. But the, you, if you can't swim, you can't be part of the swim team. So these people cannot follow the service any i'm going they don't have to daven davening is ideal if you've got a minion of 10 you need to have most of the 10 davening you need six people actually davening but the other four can just stand around and answer but if if those four can't even answer they have no idea how to answer so then it's like being a a non-swimmer on a swim team just they can't they just can't we learn to swim and with greatest of pleasure you'll be part of the team all right i've got an anonymous question here when deciding between a regular and a guy saying Kaddish, if saying Kaddish isn't strictly speaking a chiyuv, and that the mourner is only coming because he needs to say Kaddish, should we still give the minion spot to the guy saying Kaddish? Kaddish is a chiyuv. I'm not sure what, uh, what you mean by that saying Kaddish isn't strictly speaking a chiyuv. If, if a person has either a yotzat or is in his 12 months of mourning, 11 months of saying Kaddish, so he, has an, he, he does have a chiyuv and he will always get precedence with regards to aliyahs and therefore I would give him precedence with regards to attending a minion. Um, and, and that would be the case. And that, that's, you know, so if you have, a, you have a Rosh Yeshiva who rocks up at Shul that Shabbat and Chaim Shmerel who comes once a year on his father's yard site, so who gets the aliyah? Chaim Shmerel gets the aliyah. So he's got the chiyuv. So um, I hope that answers the question. All right.
Any other questions? Yeah. Yes, Simo. So, I missed the beginning, so you might have said it, but I mean, I'm assuming there's going to be some community, Sydney-wide consensus about when Orthodox shuls will be, how the minions will be, minionim will be regulated. I mean, that would be ideal. I'm, I'm assuming that's going to happen just the same as with the initial COVID-19 response was regulated. The other thing is, um, I'm not looking to look for loopholes or anything, but doesn't the undercroft lend itself to an outdoor service with 1.5 meter distancing? That's not violating any, I mean, that's adhering to guidelines. It's not violating any 10 worshippers. Then we can have 20, 30 worshippers mm-hmm. in the undercroft with physical distancing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that a consideration just as a practical issue? Okay, so on, on both accounts, is that is there going to be a unified approach? So um, I can tell you there already isn't a unified approach that the, the Sydney Baiting is trying to uh, trying to dictate what the shuls will do. I can tell you there are already two shuls in Sydney that are in operation in some form or another. Um, hopefully with the, the adequate precautions. I, I can't say for certain, but hopefully with the adequate precautions. We are currently um, <coughs> talking to our medical team um, to decide who, you know, exactly what, what needs to be followed as well, you know, a combination of what the New South Wales health guidelines are along with um, the various precautions. There has to be a register, people have to pre-register, then they have to be checked when they arrive and, and the, the distancing and the like. Um, it is my hope that within the, within the week we will be starting Minyanim. Um, w- the amount of Minyanim, like it's, you know, it's one thing to have a Minyan. Can you have multiple Minyans? Do you need to have cleaning between the Minyanim? Um, is, can you do it indoors or outdoors? Um, you're right, and I definitely, the undercroft is an option, and it is one that has been considered. The uh, problem with the undercroft is the weather. So we are go- getting further and further into winter, and uh, I'm not sure who's going to be too keen to dive in Shachrit at 6.30 uh, on a Monday morning in the undercroft. Um, so, so, we, so, the, so the question is, is, should we do the shul? Should we do the hall? Um, chances are the bait medrash is out. It's too small. Even the tepesin is too small. Um, so it's likely to try and look at the hall. But we also have to get confirmation from the school that they're comfortable with us doing that. So we're definitely on it. We want it to go back as soon as possible. But we just got to be... Um, do it properly. The, the Sydney Baiting says no Minyanim should start until Shavuot. Um, whether we will go ahead and follow that or we will uh, start when we feel that our medical uh, advisors and the, all the parties uh, uh, in, involved on the, on the health side of things are convinced that we have done the necessary precautions and then perhaps we can start um, ahead of that schedule. Thank you. Thanks. Social distancing. Sorry, so say again. How would Korea Sitora work with social distancing parameters? Are we going to be one and a half meters between each other for between the Korea and the and the Aliyah? Okay, so uh, being calling people up to the Torah. So um, a couple of things. One of the things that uh, if you if you read through a lot of the responses that have come out during COVID, is you start realizing how much of Jewish life is minhag, is custom. And customs can be, you don't dispose of customs willy-nilly, but when push comes to shove, customs are the first things to go, and you don't have to feel guilty about them. So we would have seen around Pesach that all of a sudden, things that ordinarily you have to get kashla Pesach, this year we didn't have to buy kashla Pesach. 
So um, one of the things with regards to Kriyat Torah, calling up uh, seven aliyahs or three aliyahs on Mondays and Thursdays and having uh, people standing up at the bima, all of this is customary. So Rav, uh, Rav, I can't remember if it was Rav Shecht or Rav Willig, one of the Rosh Hashivas in YU, came up and said, no, you get the Baal Korir, he will take out the Torah, he will read all the aliyahs and he will get all the aliyahs. So no one gets caught up to the Torah and uh, he does all of them and go. There are other opinions that say, well, you just, you know, you, you know, you call up uh, the Kohen and then everybody walks away and the Kohen gets his, his, his Baruch Hu and then he makes his Baruch and then he walks away and then the Baal Korir comes back. Um, not, we haven't decided exactly what we'll do, but uh, these are all customary things. So these are not uh, major halachic concerns. They are, um, okay, so normal, you know, when everything is normal, then we'll do it the way we normally do it. But at the moment, uh, everything is definitely not normal. Okay. Anyone else? Questions? David, looks like you want to talk. Yeah. yeah. I'm just responding to the unmute button. You were speaking about the length of the service. I'm just concerned. What will be ditched if you, I mean, have you got a, a one hour time frame? Is that it? You can't go more than that. Well, it's not a matter of the one hour time frame. It's m- much more the idea of, um, let's get rid of the stuff, not get rid of, but a lot of a lot of the shul service you don't need a minion for, so the minion only needs to start at baruchu. Up until baruchu, you don't need a minion. So you're right that like people want to say kaddish, but as far as uh, the psukah de zimra doesn't need a minion, so you can start the whole service and go up to baruchu without a minion. Um, so I think the Sydney Beitin says you should start with the reading of the Torah and just do musaf. So cut out shachrit. Um, we don't want to do that. We want to start with Baruch Hu. Maybe no Shema, then, if that's the case. Well, you don't need a minion for Sh- Well, you don't need a minion for Shema. Yeah, listen, it's, it's ide- listen, it's ideal. You're right. These are things ideal. But the question is, is the the the, the rationale of the the baiting amongst others are the the longer the people are together, the greater the risk. So let's try limit that time. Um, we had. I'm trying to think what Simcha it was. It might have been one of the Bar that or it's a phone earlier this year where we managed to daven a full service from Pesukah to Zimra until the end of the service plus a 15-20 minute drosha in an hour and 45 minutes. So it is doable. And, and it wasn't rushed. It just you didn't sing. And uh, we didn't do Mishabarachs. And, uh, and we still managed the, the rabbi's drosha. So an hour and a half service is very doable. Now, if you take up Sukkot Zimra, it means an hour and a quarter can be done. And uh, listen, Rabbi Kunin is a very, and we, we, don't forget, people aren't going to be caught up and down from the Torah. So you're literally going to go from one aliyah to the other. Um, you're not going to be having people coming up to say the prayer for the queen and, and the like. So you could get a whole service in an hour and 10 from Baruch Hu until the end of the service. I think an hour and 10 um, I don't, and, and it would, without it being rushed, that's the key. We're not doing things fast. There definitely won't be any singing, but uh, it won't be rushed. And it would just, it would be a practice. It would be like a weekday uh, shacharit uh, kind of service just on Shabbat. And that's what it will be for the next uh, few weeks. And uh, when, is, when Tachlis, oh, we're going to actually go back to uh, how it used to be. So that I do not know. But my, <coughs> my sources tell me, do not expect Rosh Hashanah to be like last year. So even though even though we will have a lot more people allowed, you know, it's all, let's just say you allowed a hundred people with social distancing, so that knocks out the shul. So the shul sits seven hundred and fifty. So uh, how many people can you get in the shul with social distancing? So you could probably get between fifty and hundred, I imagine, but you're not going to get seven thirty. 
So it means the shul's out. So you're going to have the shul and you can have the, the and then just the movements. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do it. But these are, we're going to do day by day, see how it comes. Um, is the number 10 restricted to the entire campus of or Kemesada or someone have their own minyanim on Shabbat? Um, we, I don't have a definite answer for that, but my, my sense is that we will probably um, have, have two services in different places um, at different times. So that the, and, and it, I don't think it will so much be an Oretza for Masada service as much as it will be two, uh, two services that we're going to have to figure out um, if we can have, uh, you know, 13 people at each, you know, including clergy. So then who are the 10 that are going to go to the one and who are the 10 going to go to the other? And that's going to be based on who, who signs up. And uh, I'm not going to make any assumptions on, uh, based, on based on what we, we've talked about this evening. I, I don't want to make any declarations that, you know, if you're, if you're Shomer Shabbos, seven-day attendee, that definitely you'll be there. Um, even if you get in, so to speak, if you win the lucky, you know, the golden ticket, it just means you'll be at the first service. But there'll probably be a rotation. So if you don't get into Shachrit on uh, first day Shavuot, you'll get to Shachrit on second day Shavuot. Or you'll get to something else and it's just going to have to rotate. So unless you want to be a rabbi, a clergy, Dave, I, I, there's going to be, if you, if you learn the laning for Shavuot, you'll definitely have two services because you're going to need laners. So if you want to learn the laning, will be a way of getting, there you go. So Dave, you can be the laner. That means we don't have to count you in the tent. And you don't have to be counted in the tent. All right. All right, any other questions before we sign off for this evening? Going, going. I'm gone. All right, thank you, everybody. Laila Tov, have a pleasant evening. Hope to see you tomorrow night. Philosophy, got big questions. Does Judaism believe in fate? Um, we'll see that tomorrow night. All right, all the best. Laila Tov. Laila Tov.